Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly-like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, if you use the code PARPOLBRO10 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 10% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com, because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that can also deliver 140 jabs per minute, which is why no one on the block messes with these jukes. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and as Ming the Merciless's sickly withered brother and vaccine deployment minister, Nadim Zawahi, insists the vaccine programme should lead to a marked reduction in deaths from March, does he actually just mean he'll be using a permanent marker to physically draw a minus sign next to any toll numbers? I'm recording this on Blue Monday, which we all know isn't a thing, as every single one of the 600 Mondays in January are the worst thing ever, and they're mostly grey, not blue. However, uh, there are some reasons to be cheerful this week, as the vaccine supply is being rolled out seemingly successfully, and US President and Leatherface's dirty laundry pile Donald Trump leaves office. Great news for the US, but for us in the UK, it simply means that more of us are likely to live through even more years of a shit-awful Conservative government, while we watch the US dropping ranks on the most stupid country to elevate 
elevators back into first position. Sorry, I was trying to find the positives, wasn't I? Although actually, right now in this country, it'd be much better if we had heaps of negatives. According to Chief Medical Officer and Moon Baby Chris Whitty, things should improve by the spring, which is presumably down to people being COVID-proof by then, rather than just how shutting travel corridors over a year too late means that by April we'll all have had the virus at least three times and the country will be so underpopulated it'll be reclaimed by nature and thus become a far better place to be. The vaccines are reaching people though, which is good, and over half of all 80-year-olds have had at least one dose, meaning that now the Conservatives know their voter base is safe, they'll probably halt the process. 24-hour vaccination centres are being trialled from later this month, which is exciting as my nightlife has been dead for so long that if I get a a 2am appointment, I'm definitely turning up with glow sticks and shouting shot, shot, shots to make the most of it. Over 70s will be offered the vaccine from this week in what the Prime Minister and Ludo from Labyrinth, Boris Johnson, has said is a significant milestone, though whether we'll find it when we've been travelling either directionless or backwards for months is yet to be seen. There are worries that vaccine production is, as Nadim Zawahi called it, lumpy, which makes it sound like the Prime Minister has been trying to help produce it. But despite that, the Vaccine Deployment Minister is certain that the UK is on course to vaccinate 15 million of the most vulnerable people by mid-February, which poses two very big questions. The first is, does Zawahi mean vaccinated with the two jabs that are required, as the pledge is that everyone will get the second one within 12 weeks, which would then be way past February? It could be a bit like how every glove was counted as an individual item of PPE, as though the government had looked at old Michael Jackson videos and presumed they were guides to frontline health worker safety, though to be fair, Heal the World could have given them that impression. And so now, maybe we just have a situation where every single vaccine dose is somehow a full vaccine, and presumably anyone who falls ill or dies from COVID before getting the second one is therefore only counted as half a person, reducing the toll dramatically. Maybe, like with everything the government do, one jab means you've not not been vaccinated and therefore that means in their minds you've been completely vaccinated in the same way some coronavirus regulations means they haven't done no coronavirus regulations and therefore the pressure the NHS is currently struggling under must be your fault, you there in the public, because you haven't inflicted any regulations being too selfish to even be able to push through laws. Ugh, selfish. That's what the Home Secretary in severe ice warning, Pretty Patel, insinuated during her first press conference since last May, where she reminded us all that she's tough on crime, but the Home Secretary's far tougher on your ears as she dribbles out a statement like she's been forced to do a presentation at her school assembly despite not doing any prep for it. According to Patel, there is a minority putting people at risk because it's impossible for her not to dog whistle even when about a virus. Patel made a big hoo-ha about how we all have to stick to the lockdown restrictions, but the fact is most people are, and compliance is actually higher than in lockdowns 1, 2, the miniseries or the spin-off special. Maybe when the Home Secretary says we need to stick to the rules, she's referring to the police who seem to be giving fines to anything that moves in the fear that if they don't seem busy, Patel will cut their numbers again. Which she will, of course, by insisting there's clearly no crime anymore now everyone's stuck at home, and as soon as things return to normal, we'll blame the police for the sudden rise, despite the entire force now being one officer on a scooter with a football clacker and a kazoo. Play your part in the fight against Covid, said Patel, making me wonder if they're only destroying the arts so they can get everyone to be extras in their never-ending over-the-top drama for free. I'm happy to play my part as long as it's speaking and I'd get to do my own political stunts. But who is everyone else playing, hmm? Pretty, uh, you can be the villain that pushes over kids, yeah? I know it's typecasting, but it really suits you and you're very good at it. Johnson, uh, idiot who turns out to be working for a virus in the end. And where's Hancock? We need someone to play a gormless hat stand. One of the new slogans for a government advertisement campaign to make people comply like they already are doing is don't let a coffee cost a life, which no, isn't just a nod to how pricey Starbucks is now that they have to recoup the past year's losses. Flat white, that'll be £89 in your firstborn, please. 
No, it's the government insinuating that by going to get a coffee, you could spread the virus, something they could have prevented by insisting coffee shops close and investing in their staff being furloughed. Another one, Covid takes the train too, which it doesn't. It's airborne. Don't think you can refund the transport system by trying to charge germs for a child ticket. But also just close the trains then and fund people so they don't have to get them. Or change the adverts to say, it's your fault if you obey the rules we half-assed and then you get ill, so listen to us telling you not to listen to us except for this bit that you need to listen to. According to polls, the public are sadly blaming the public rather than the government for the high infection rates. Just not themselves public, you know, all the other ones. It's a sad indictment of modern-day Britain that absolutely no one trusts each other to do the right thing, even though most people are doing the right thing. But then we have all witnessed how elections go, so maybe it's a very sensible way to be. And let's face it, the government is so incompetent, it's at times hard to believe that they've managed to achieve anything, even if it's just a consistent level of monumental fuck-uppery. The second big question, yes, see, I didn't forget, that Nadim Zawahi's promised to get 15 million of the most vulnerable vaccinated by February poses, is... Are the government only trying to save those people first so the virus doesn't get to them before their policies do, which would then render them pointless? I mean, what's the point in reducing the lifeline that is the universal credit uplift of £20 a week if no one will live long enough to suffer from losing it? Labour leader and 1970s sci-fi robot without the lovable personality, Keir Starmer, urged Boris Johnson to give families a helping hand, which isn't something you'd say to a man who's likely to think that means having a one-nighter with their mum and then running away. Conservatives chose to abstain from voting on the motion to keep the uplift because nothing says responsible for people's lives, quite like hoping if no one sees you there they might forget you've got anything to do with it. Instead, a few of them attended to make derogatory speeches, including MP for Stourbridge, who'd look like she'd patronise you about your love life on a daytime TV show, Suzanne Webb, who said that the £20 uplift would entrench welfare dependency. Yes, of course it would, Suzanne, whereas if you removed it, all those people would be straight out of the door to get one of those jobs that no longer exists because the government hadn't prepared for any of the many crises of the year slash years slash many, many years. Starmer called the abstention pathetic, which is odd as you'd have thought he'd admire them taking his tactics and see it as an automatic approval of his party's motion. In response, Number 10 have accused Labour of spreading fear about the cuts to universal credit, while at the same time saying they probably will still remove the uplift. But I guess they're right, you know, it's unfair to spread fear and have someone spoiler all the shock scares you have planned for your never-ending horror show. The funniest bit was when the Prime Minister sent a WhatsApp message on Sunday to Tory MPs, accusing Labour of inciting the worst kind of hatred and bullying of a kind seen sadly across the Atlantic. Was he referring to the storming of the capital by fascists just the other week? If so, I wasn't aware that those neo-Nazis smashed into the building to demand that families shouldn't have to choose between eating or electricity. When they attacked that cop and chanted kill him with his own gun, did the Proud Boys actually mean, during these crisis times of the pandemic, people are finding it increasingly difficult to financially survive and this 20 bad extra a week is a necessity to prevent them falling into worse poverty. Hmm, maybe they did. I mean, those Southern American accents can be really hard to understand at times. It takes quite a level of disassociation not to realise that were they over here, those who seized the capital would likely still just follow the racist one with the shit hair. Johnson's press officer and draft Picasso piece, Allegra Stratton, said that the Prime Minister believes all political figures need to be civil and kind to each other. You know, like how he once compared the former Labour leader to Stalin or the EU to Napoleon and Hitler. Or spends every week laughing at Keir Starmer for suggesting that he shouldn't let people die. Maybe we have to understand that for Boris, this is victimisation for him. You know, asking Johnson to justify anything he does when the only reasons he does them are because the last person he saw said to or it was what it said at the top of the page. 
Zawahi called Labour's motion a stunt, and as a stunt means displaying spectacular skill and daring, I suppose to the Conservatives, asking that you help people stay alive without paying money into places you have investments with, it could very much be seen as that. To be fair, it could still be seen as a stunt for the opposition too, as with the issues of free school meals, they only really got into action after a footballer and a food writer did first, choosing to act on policies a lot like how politicians choose to do reality shows. You know, it depends on who else has been invited in case it's bad for their image and may highlight how emotionless they are. Photos circulated around Twitter of the food packages sent to families whose children qualify for the free school meal support during remote learning. And they contain the kind of varied and nutritious food collection that you'd find in a cardboard child's shopping board game where it's assumed an apple means all fruit and veg in existence. The parcel supposedly cost £15 per child, but only contained about £5 of food, so unless the providers were spending 10 quid on scratch cards so they could blame the claimants, or using it to snort up the line they took while packing these parcels they thought were funny at the time, it's clear that something was off. What was off, of course, was one of the main company's supplying packs are owned by a Tory donor and Big Game Hunter, the two things that go hand in hand as they love gloating about having directly killed living things. The company, Chartwells, apologised that someone had found them out and said that the food in one particular image, but not the others, don't ask about the others, was for five, not ten days and cost £10.50, not £30, as been stated. Yeah, so, you know, they only expect children to starve and become malnourished for half the amount of time you thought, and they only poorly spent a third of the money, so it's clear they aren't the bad guys here. Jesus, I can't believe that by speaking up about wanting children to be fed properly during a global pandemic, these parents are inciting the worst kind of hatred and bullying of a kind seen sadly across the Atlantic. Luckily, thanks to Leader of the Opposition, Marcus Rashford and Jack Monroe, food meal vouchers were reinstated too, meaning parents could actually pick decent food for their kids themselves, and Boris Johnson said he agreed that the company that he and his government have repeatedly hired for four years now and take donations from do not meet the standards that they set out. So that probably means they'll have to donate even more to the Conservatives from now on, which they should manage by pocketing all the cash that they didn't spend on cheese slices. Despite all this, the government have confirmed that they won't be providing free school meals during the next half term, and I have to say it's really changed my mind about many of those cartoons I watched as a kid. I always thought Wiley e. Coyote trying the same evil plan over and over despite its constant failure was unrealistic, but no, it turns out not. There are also big worries that there are plans to rip up workers' rights now that we've Brexited, with the Prime Minister claiming he would go even further than the EU to protect workers in the UK. So we know that means that he'll look to countries such as Bangladesh or Colombia for influence instead. The new business secretary and grumpiest member of the Munch Bunch, Kwasi Kwarteng, said there were no plans to lower working standards, but then that just sounds like they'll go ahead with it on a whim like they do everything else. I'm sceptical to be honest, but only because they wouldn't diminish workers' rights when it would just get in the way of the Conservatives' plan to make everyone apart from their mates unemployed. Don't worry though, as the government are going to do all they can to protect those grey, motionless symbols of historical violent imperialism. No, I don't mean Conservative backbenchers, I mean statues. Housing minister, and like if someone tried to open a carton of milk upside down, Robert Jenrick, wrote an article in The Best Way to Dishonour a Dead Tree's Family, The Telegraph, claiming that every statue will be given protection from baying mobs, with bizarre fury that can only come from someone directly related to the weeping angels from Doctor Who. Jenrick said the statues are often raised by a village, clearly mistaking them for children, and warns against lying about the past, while he also included a made-up fact that Birmingham has banned naming streets after people. Actually, they've recently named one after the first black person elected to the council, but saying that, I'm almost certain Jenrick doesn't count anyone that isn't white as people. A financial scheme for airports in England will also open this month to support them during the closure of travel corridors to the UK, as industry groups said there was only so long that they could run on fumes, so it's nice to know that they now understand how the planet feels. 
So there's no support for families on the poverty line, children who are hungry or workers' rights, but loads of support for out-of-date, unanimated, stony-faced nods to slave owners and to polluting runways. But I suppose you turn to the things you feel you have something in common with first, don't you? In other news and over in the US, it is Donald Trump's last few days in office and he goes with the lowest approval rating of a president after their first, or in his case, only term ever. And being the only president in history to be impeached twice. Still, it must cheer him up knowing that he's the best at something. President-elect and star of Sackboy, A Big Adventure, Joe Biden, will be inaugurated on Wednesday and the event will include the reuniting of 90s alternative rock band The New Radicals, who will sing their 1998 hit You Get What You Give, which is meant to be an uplifting anthem for the Democrats, but in the age of the coronavirus the title just sounds a bit much. Biden is expected to reverse a lot of Trump's policies within his first few days in office, like scrapping the travel bans and rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Hopefully he'll reverse the child separation policy too, with an exception for Baron Trump, who's probably going to need everyone's help possible to avoid having anything to do with his dad ever again. Trump is planning to issue more than 100 pardons in his last few hours in office, but isn't expected to pardon himself. But that's okay. he doesn't need to because the entire world is sorry for his existence. In the Netherlands, the government resigned after thousands of families were wrongly accused of child welfare fraud, which might seem pretty admirable when you consider the British government pretend to not even be aware what a mistake is. But actually, it looks like it's an act of self-preservation, meaning the Prime Minister and what if you drew glasses on the sole of a shoe, Mark Rutter, will avoid a vote of no confidence in Parliament next week. Still, I'd take a resign before you could get fired from Boris Johnson any day of the week over a I'm still here and it's everyone else's fault, I'm a dickhead. Back in the UK, the police have lost over 400,000 records, but that's okay as you can get the one with message in a bottle on it for really cheap now. Oh, I said it, I said it. No, they accidentally deleted them due to human error, and Pretty Patel is seemingly reluctant to give an account of what happened, instead fobbing it off to Tony Way's worst character and Minister for Crime and Policing, Kit Malthouse, to deal with. Maybe the Home Secretary can't talk about it as it'd give away that she'd nabbed them for herself so she can roam the streets at night trying to apprehend the suspects in order to satiate her thirst. Scottish Labour leader and man who always looks like someone's aiming a hairdryer right at his face, Richard Leonard, has resigned from his position in charge of the party. Though I assumed he'd done that about three years ago, at least in spirit. Contenders are now stepping up to find out who wants to see if there's any of the dead horse left to flog. And hey, I guess in these times of pandemic, a job's a job, innit? And lastly, Brexit is continuing to cause trading problems as all the red tape that's supposedly being cut is now just in many, many small pieces and sticking thousands of lorries to the Dover-Calais crossing. One of the particular highlights is the inadequate government system for goods that tells you how much you have to pay in tax for imports and then charges you to tell you what the fee will be. So to work out what to pay, you have to pay. It's like the exact opposite of a try-before-you-buy deal. The fishing industry, you know, the one that many MPs touted as a specific reason for a harder deal, they're particularly miffed as delays and extra paperwork means much of their stock has now gone off. Many lawyers staged a protest outside Parliament, though sadly very few MPs noticed as they're trained to turn a blind eye to anything fishy. Leader of the House of Commons and star of the cabinet of Dr Caligari, Jacob Rees-Mogg, responded by claiming that the important thing is that we've got our fish back and they're now British fish and better and happier for it. I'm not saying he should have his basement investigated ASAP, but it says a lot that he thinks true joy comes from being a lifeless cold corpse that's been bashed on the head and then bled out. Or perhaps just Mogg actually knows how they feel due to his ability to communicate with other fellow bottom feeders. Hey, Papal Broads, how is you? Oh, really? No, that sounds grim. Maybe try putting some cream on it. Yes, double, I reckon. Me. Uh, yeah, I'm still here, uh, which I think bears up as decent at the mo. And I realised the other day uh, that this week, well, sort of more next week's episode, really, uh, will be five years since I started this goddamn podcast. 
I know, right? That is five years of me spending every single Monday going, how do I make a joke about the same things being awful as they were last week? That is five years of that. And five years of descriptions. And the very first one, I looked back and checked, the very first one was describing Theresa May as a woman who's constantly haunted by all those Dalmatians she's killed. Uh, original? No, not now. But back on January the 19th, 2016, uh, it also wasn't. Uh, the first guest uh, for that episode was Dr. and pal Keir Shields, who talked to me all about the junior doctor's strike at the time. And it's so funny to think that all these years later, uh, we barely remember that as the NHS is now collapsing in entirety instead. Uh, how times change. I saw someone praising Jeremy Hunt uh, on Twitter the other day, or as I described uh, Jeremy Hunt in episode 79, a man who constantly looks and speaks as though he's just stood on a rake. Um, and they were saying he was making sense about telling the government to close schools. And I just thought, oh, mate, if he was in government, he'd have been as bad as Matt Hancock and probably have spent this entire time just hiding behind a tree and then hopefully got arrested for being outside for something other than essential exercise. See, it's that sort of golden insight that this show has given me. Five years ago, didn't even know what a tree was. Now, here I am. Can't believe that. It's been five years and this show still hasn't destroyed populism or neoliberalism or capitalism or even just a prism. Should have really bought a prism and just broken it to say that I've achieved something. But uh, I do hope you've enjoyed at least a bit of those five years, or at the very least, not hated it. And I suppose I'll probably keep doing it until all of those things are finally sorted out, uh, or I have to do something else far more important on a Monday, which may happen. Five years in, and this is a nice one to have for the unofficial fifth anniversary episode, because, oh, but before I get to why, oh yes, cliffhangers, you see, I've been completely absorbed in a brilliant Korean supernatural comedy action drama called Uncanny Counter on Netflix. Trust me, properly incredible and they do cliffhangers very well so now I'm just tempted to constantly end every episode of this podcast on something dramatic so that you come back next week um, saying that it's quite hard to get more dramatic than the government keeps saying they don't want to feed kids so uh, difficult to top anyway um, before before I explain why um, thank you tons to Joe and Richard for the Kofi donation this week that is much appreciated and of course should any of you wish to donate to the happening of this show even though look it's mid-January uh, the longest month ever and we're in a pandemic and no one has money unless they've been able to sell paper bags to the government as PPE um, but if you do still wish to donate you can do that at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro uh, join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or via the ACAST supporter button on the ACAST app it's been five years now and 247 episodes including bonus ones so why not donate me something for each one of those say uh, £4,356 per one sounds reasonable I reckon doesn't it that'd be good actually though uh, I'm okay at the moment thanks to some bits of work coming in and lots of nice online gigs for places like NHS London uh, that I did last week and that was a lot of fun um, and I should shamelessly say I don't do this enough really but I should shamelessly say that if you'd like my face on a zoom screen near you uh, doing some stand up online for you then drop me a line as I am very happy to do gigs for your work your pals or just any sort of group really uh, not any group obviously not conservative group or terrorist group or blood group uh, the latter is because if you perform to a blood group there's always so many negatives ah, um, but yeah uh, do drop me a line in all the many ways you can if you fancy it and over on my alter comedy ego um, the, the less sweary one our comedy club for kids company has been doing online shows for schools birthday parties and all sorts weddings bar mitzvahs um, so uh, you can always bother me about that sort of thing too um, very quickly as well thank you to uh, Data Tata for your lovely updated review of the podcast and again if you fancy reviewing the show just do just do it don't hold back I'm not going to stop you you control your life be free do with it as you will and uh, review the podcast uh, or just spread the word about how much you like it apart from those weird bits about being free 
Right, um, super quickly, admin, admin, admin. There are still lots of tickets left for the live podcast at Leicester Comedy Festival, and I've got a couple, I think, of great local grassroots campaigners uh, to talk to. Um, plus, there'll be jokes and that sort of thing too. February 6th at 4.30pm online, obviously, and tickets are available on the Leicester Comedy Festival website, and I've popped a link in the podcast blurb too. Please, please come, or it'll just be me shouting at my computer, which, I mean, is what I'm doing now it's probably not that different it's not that bad actually but come along so isn't just this again anyway um this episode is yet again also sponsored by the lovely crew at british boxers um if you didn't hear uh, last week's show the british box are genuinely uh, good uns they're a lovely ethical politically sorted um company uh, who make actually comfy clothes i'm wearing their pants right now and oh my goodness it's lovely um and anyway uh, we're trialing a sort of i help them they help me co-op thing so if you go to their site to buy some excellent pants or pajamas or the like um use the code parpolebro 10 to get 10 percent off oh and while i'm here and I mentioned Comedy Club for Kids earlier. Um, if you and your kids fancy a podcast that you can actually let them listen to, unlike this one, or you're just a grown-up that fancies some silly escapism, I have started up our Comedy Club for Kids radio nonsense podcast again, um, and the first guest this season was Stuart Goldsmith of Comedians Comedian Podcast fame, who answered some questions about flying pigs and eyebrows that a nine-year-old sent in, naturally. Uh, so do check that out. Right, OK, I need to shut up as this episode is very long, but oh, it's so good. I have finally got the brilliant Musa Okwonga on this show, uh, a fantastic writer who is telling me all about his memoir of being at Eton School and how he saw the beginnings of so many of the events that are happening now while he was there. Plus, there is a very teeny middle bit because there is no time. Hurry, hurry, cliffhanger music, end credits. Now wait a week to listen to the next bit. No, don't. Here it is. If a factory had boasted of producing 20 of Britain's prime ministers, including meat towel David Cameron and our current disappointment and harassed lint rejection Boris Johnson, you'd probably have shut it down on account of a breach of public health and safety. Yet for Eton College, near Windsor, it's seen as one of its marks of success. The school's motto being Floriat Etonia, or May Eton Flourish, but in Latin so it sounds less selfish. At £42,501 per year for a pupil to attend and an annual 80% tax break because it has charitable status because, hey, the wealthiest have to eat too. It definitely does flourish. Eton College isn't a college. It's the most famous public school in the world. And much like all public schools in the UK, it isn't really open to the public either. Having been referred to as the chief nurse of England's statesman, just obviously via private healthcare rather than on an NHS budget. But is the school solely to blame for nurturing some of the worst people in the world? Or is it just yet another part of a cemented monopolising class system like Surrey or the Sainsbury's Taste the Difference range? While that might seem an odd question to ask, there have been some changes to the way the school works recently. The fees put it out of the reach of any but the richest families, but in recent years Eton has vastly increased the amount of pupils that receive 70% financial assistance, as well as the amount that attend for free. Current head teacher Simon Henderson has attempted to make the school more palatable to a modern world, having apologised to former pupil and writer Dilibi Oniwama for the racism he experienced there in the 1960s, and Henderson recently rattled several former Tory attendees for dismissing an English tutor that was promoting toxic masculinity. But despite all that, what do Eton do to pupils to make them feel like they should be in charge of the country? Even if we all know they'd struggle to tie their own shoelaces without sooner giving up and announcing that it's safer to have untied shoelaces now, denying any responsibility when 12 people were eaten by escalators as a result. Should places like Eton exist, or is the bigger problem that people like Boris Johnson do? And while I personally deeply feel that private schools are inherently wrong, is my real issue that my school's motto was just everyone matters in plain English, but I still somehow got picked last for the football team every single time. 
This week, um, I spoke to someone I've been wanting to get on this podcast ever since I read his incredible piece in the brilliant collection of essays uh, titled The Good Immigrant that came out in 2016. Uh, Musa Akwonga is an exceptional writer, a brilliant political voice, and somehow in between all that also has time to talk a lot about football. This year, Musa has several books being published, but I spoke to him all about one of them, his memoir of being at Eton College and as I've stolen from the Waterstones website, <clears throat> his incisive and cogently argued account of his bittersweet relationship with an institution that did him much good, yet seems to have a negative effect on large parts of society. Thanks, Waterstones. Sigh, I really miss bookshops. So I asked Musa to tell me all about his book. Tell me just why this school is so pivotal to the mess the government has made with Brexit and the handling of the coronavirus. And we worked out maybe why Boris Johnson is just so bad at relationships. This is a long one, but to be honest, I could have spoken to Musa for a lot longer if we'd had the time, because it was a properly great chat. I hope you enjoy. Um, hi, Musa. I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast and be dying to get you on. And uh, I want to talk to you. You've got like all of the books coming out this year. You've just written everything. I'm expecting to, whenever Waterstones opens for it, just be entirely your shelves of you. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about your one of them book, which comes out in April, um, which uh, people can pre-order now. And uh, it's about your Eton education, which I remember reading about in your amazing piece in The Good Immigrant, um, which I reread recently. And you've mentioned in your sort of blurb for one of them that your agent said to you that your Eton education is something you've actually avoided talking about, which you're someone I know talks about a lot of things. You're quite open and bold about your politics and everything. And I found it quite interesting that you've avoided talking about going to Eton. So what made you decide to write one of them now? Um, yeah, I'll explain. So first of all, um, thank you for having me on, first of all, because you know, I see what you've been doing online and like your know, comedy and you're a real force for trying to push things in a positive direction. We need as much of that as possible. So thank you for that. Uh, and it's a privilege to be on here. Um, secondly, in terms of writing all the books, uh, so this year I've got three books coming out, which I'm very proud of. And my aim was to do something revolutionary, was to have offline content. So, you know, online content, I was like, let me have offline content. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you go into old the bookstore. School, yeah. yeah, old school. We, we take even the old, I'm wearing the old school top today as well, the Adidas, Orig Adidas Originals, we're taking it back. Um, but yeah, about the book, why I wrote it. So I was... Um, my dad passed away when he was 40 and I reached the age of 36 and I suddenly was like, oh my God, like, I don't, I can't, I don't have any tools yet to cope with what it will feel like when I pass the age that my father was. I had basically a kind of, not a midlife crisis, had an end life crisis. The age of, at the age of 36, I was like, I haven't done enough in my life. My dad died at 40 and he'd done so much by the time he was 40. So I went to talk to a, um, a therapist about this, a counsellor, and I was like, look, I just want to talk about this because it feels significant to be older than my father. Um, and it feels significant. I've only got four years to go and I feel like I haven't measured up to the human being he was. He did incredible things. He's one of the first black consultant surgeons in the UK. Um, and he went back and he, he died in the war in Uganda. He um, was the chief military superintendent Um he was he was the chief surgeon, sorry, for the um, uh, the military hospital, and got killed. Uh, his helicopter was shot down, and so I felt like I hadn't done enough to sort of measure up to the man he was. So I go to this, you know, this guy. Talk to this guy, brilliant, brilliant counselor slash therapist, and I can share the details, obviously, to anyone who might be interested. He does Zoom chats. He's amazing, um, and 
he was like, you never talk about school. He was the one, he was like, you never talk about school. You talk about race and your bisexuality, you never talk about school. And I was like, oh, I need to write about that because I think I didn't talk about it because it was the, you know, I don't choose my race, I don't choose my sexuality, but I chose to go to private school. I chose to go to Eton, like in a way that people don't, everyone goes, oh my God, so-and-so didn't choose to go there. I did because I saw a documentary on Channel 4 called Class of 91 and I saw this school on TV and it looked like an incredible place to study. And I said to my mum, I want to go there. Even though I had a place at the um, the grammar school, shout out to Lanny Grammar, I had, a, I had a place there. I had some of the highest grades in Berkshire. I was doing really well in school. But I was like, that's a challenge I want. And I went there and I feel like I subjected myself to that. And I'm not saying I had a terrible experience. Like actually I gained so much from that place. The education was incredible. But I felt like you don't have a right to complain about anything that you feel as a result of being there. So I didn't talk about it for years. I mean, it's fascinating though, because, you know, a lot of people, I suppose it's not that they don't choose to go to Eton. Uh, people were probably expected to go. Yeah. And then I, I think for many other people, the choice would never be there. It's quite incredible that you wanted to go and then went. I mean, that that's quite an achievement in itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was lucky though. My, um, so my grades obviously were really good. It was what saved me. Um, and my mum, she worked so hard. Like uh, She brought up like a load of us by herself because my, my, dad, my dad was killed and she had to bring up like a bunch of us by herself, which she did. And, you know, she didn't need any more problems from someone like me. But I was like, look, um, let me see if I can do it. So I went and got like a 50, I did well enough to get a 50% bursary she basically went, did a bit of research. This is obviously before Google. She asked around and she was like, how do we do this? So I had to go to prep school first and then did my exams and got into Eton. And there weren't many people from my, my background there. Like, so now like Eton takes a lot of people from sick form college. Like, it takes a lot of people in the last two years, right? A lot of those kids are obviously, a lot, there's, there's, quite a few, there's quite a few more black people there than there were in my day. In my day, out of 1,260 students, I would say there were about four or five black people at any one time, black kids, students at any one time, four or five, no more than that. There's quite a few more now. And quite a few of those black kids are from, you know, I, my mum's middle, you know, middle class doctor, you know, um, whereas a lot of those black kids going now, I think, are entering the school at 16 and will be like top of their class from like working class backgrounds, right? But I think the path that I had, this is really important to stress, the path that I had I think is much more is much more unusual now because as far as I know, there aren't taking as many black kids from that kind of catchment that I had. Like it's it's either open to people who are like exceptional at the age of sixteen, or it's basically like maybe more diverse backgrounds, but like basically wealthy kids from an early age because the school fees have now doubled since I was there or tripled. Wow. They've tripled. So even even kids getting fifty percent help are like much more well-off than my mum was. So people like me, that opportunity doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist. Is that, I mean, that's a sort of interesting thing, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, that, you know, uh, again, the, sort of reading from your, your Good Immigrant piece about the, the racial issues that you had uh, being one of the only black kids at, at Eton at the time. And I wanted to ask, actually, with, you know, what was more divisive? Was it that or was it, you know, coming from a middle-class background as opposed to an, an upper-class or an extremely wealthy background? Um, but I wondered if that... 
you know, they're changing who they're accepting. Is that because sort of people from working class that work super hard? They're the it's the meritocracy. They've earned their way. <laughs> Whereas people, in the, you know, there's a, there's an odd sort of mindset to that to not take people from the middle class anymore and only take the true achievers from the working class. It feels very sort of conservative ideology. Well, that's the thing, and uh, that's if, that's a really great point because, and a friend of mine actually pointed this out. He met, it's him that pointed out because he said. I saw you come to prep school. And when I went to the way that prep school works, for those who don't know is it's a it prepares you for private school, prepares you for like secondary school for high school, like Eton, right? So you go there. Most people are there since the age of seven, but I joined at the age of um, 11. So I basically had two years to catch up, like a two year crash course to catch up on all these subjects I'd never studied before, before applying to Eton. Now I had never studied Latin or Greek or French. So I was bottom of every single class. When I joined at the age of 11, anyone that knows me will, will tell you it's true. I was bottom of every single class in my first term because I'd literally never studied any of these subjects before. And they must have thought I was stupid. I was bottom of maths, bottom of everything. The only subject that I was like, I think top two in was English. It's the only thing I'd studied the same as everyone else to the same level because English, you know, anyone can learn it, anyone can whatever. So in two years, I had to take myself from a bottom of every single class, pretty much, to being good enough to get like a bursary at Eton. It was the amount of work I had to do in two years was, astonishing. I don't know, I still don't know how I did it, but I managed to do it to get myself to a point where I was actually like good enough. Um, and French became, when it came to the Eton scholarship exam, which I sat, which is still the hardest exam I sat in my life. Um, it's unbelievable. This thing was like, it was unreal. I can't explain how hard this, 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 this uh, exam was. French was my strongest subject. So in just two years, I went from nothing to that level. And that's not a boast. That's a sheer determination and sheer, like, I can't let this, I can't mess this up. Now, while I was a hamster on that wheel, a friend made a great point. He said, look, all this stuff about meritocracy, he said, you ran, you, I saw how hard you worked. You went, you took yourself from the bottom of the class. By the time I left that school, I was one of the top students in my year in almost every subject. He said, you did that in two years. He said, I was signed up for Eton at birth, okay, all I had to do was scrape through every exam and I got the same place that you fought so hard for. He's like, that's unfair. He's like, he, he, he said it. He's like, he said it. He's from there. He's still one of my best friends from school. He said, that's unfair, Musa. You worked so, so hard to get to the same place that I basically just kind of strolled into. And that was the point at which I was like, wow. Like you, you so rarely hear someone from inside that, that world and that class system say that. And I was like, that is so striking because you never hear that right you never hear someone go no you ran you ran you raised yourself up he said yeah but you were raising yourself up but what was i doing i was just walking you were basically punishing yourself in class i saw you he was like side by side we're still really good friends he went to eton we're still in touch now years later he was like side by side you bust a gut to a level i have not seen and i was just cater i was just cantering walking I mean, that's sort of the British class system all over, though, isn't it? Isn't that, you know, I mean, it's, it's what we're seeing in the government now with all these people in positions that are, they're 100% not suitable for, 100% have no uh, qualifications or background in, but they're doing these top level jobs. And, and everyone who's working so hard at their things, it's taken them a lot longer to get, yeah, yeah. you know, to earn a living from it or to do too well out of it. And, 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 and I suppose, you know, also just with racism in this country, is, you know, one of the um, sort of, uh, it's always been said, hasn't it, that sort of black children have to work extra hard just to get to to be seen as the same level as white counterparts. You know, it's it's always that kind of discrimination that means 
other people are having to work harder than those who are already born straight into the top. Yeah, it's wild because you see people, there are just enough people succeeding that everyone's like, oh, well, like, well, what's the real problem? You did all right for yourself. It's, it's not about me. Like, I would have been fine wherever I went, actually. I would have been fine. I would have done fine. But why do you have to bust the gut just to get to the point where people are just because they've been given stuff? That's like, that to me seems unfair. Now, you know, at the age of like, 11 when you apply to play you're not thinking about that you're just thinking that education looks amazing and then you step back and you deconstruct it and you realize that not everyone in that system is working as hard as you are right or and what i mean by that is not that it's all about whoever works the hardest gets the most it's not really about that i'm saying that it's about opportunity like some people like never have to navigate these hurdles and the strange thing is that these people that didn't have to navigate these hurdles then don't want to be in charge of the entire country, which they don't have experience of. They don't have experience, a lot of them, of the struggles of regular people. Like a lot of these people have never, never known of poverty, encountered poverty. Poverty for them is a field trip, some of them, that they take when they become MPs. There was a moment when Ian Duncan Smith, who didn't attend Eton, but has that sort of same, the same energy we're talking about here about the class system. Ian Duncan Smith, I think after he'd been Tory leader, went around the UK and looked at like poverty and he was like, my God, and he looked shocked. And I was like, you were the leader of the Conservative Party and you didn't know what was going on in your own country. And since then, of course, he's doubled down on a lot of this rhetoric. And it's like, you realise how deeply some of that has been conditioned and accepted that conditioning. It's really, really striking. And the scary thing when I wrote this book, and we'll get into that maybe later, but it's how people some of the people you respect the most can go on and have some of the most repressive policies. The people that you see in that environment, you get on with, you actually really like, you respect, you look up to, they go on and do stuff that's extremely repressive in societal terms. And you realise it's because they actually have no empathy for people outside that circle, a lot of them. They don't have that empathy within the circle, it's like, but outside it, they're like, this. they've not even experienced it. See, that's fascinating because one of the things I really want to ask you about, is, you know, from the excerpts that I've read of your book, you, you've got a real fondness for being at Eton. And I mean, so I, I went to North London State School and my very, very limited experience of Eton, which you may enjoy, was at a party once when I was about 16. And uh, it was with lots of mates from my school and some kids from other schools. And there was one boy who kept coming up to us. He was quite drunk going, um, I'm from Eton. Please don't hate me. And so we obviously all hated him because he seemed like a knob. Um, but that was <laughs> one experience. Like, well, if that's how you're going to introduce yourself, you're obviously a prick. Um, um, but that, that was sort of our one experience. And then I think that, you know, it's then through politicians that we've seen and prime ministers. And I and I wondered with, with some of the, you know, the, the talking about how teachers were with you and how sort of kind and kind of or um, as, what's the word? I suppose confidence building, some of the, the way in which they taught you seemed really, I mean, gentle and lovely. And I think in my head, I just assumed that Eton was training people to be less empathetic. So have we got like misconceptions about the private schooling system and, and Eton in particular because of, because the only people we see are say Boris Johnson, you know, does, has that warped how we see it? Well, I think that's the fault of people from my school though. If you think about it, right. So look, um, my whole thing was, hang on a minute. Why are the most visible people from my school? Effectively it's ambassadors doing this, this damage, right? Which, in my opinion, is damage to society, right? Because, oh, there's nice ones from there. Well, look, let's be, let's be honest. Let's look in the mirror and be like, if you are an institution that prides itself on creating the leaders in society, and, you know, my school is, I own that, like, it's why the book is called One of Them, I'm one of them. Like, 
If as a school, the school prides itself on creating great leaders in society to the extent that it will have the busts, the statues of leaders. In, there's a place called Upper School. You go in there and you see the busts of all the prime ministers there, like I think Disraeli, Gladstone, um, there'll be Cameron now and Johnson. That you, You're obviously proud of your products, right? If you weren't, you wouldn't have their busts up there. So you're obviously saying we're proud of the power that we create, that we acquire. Then the question is, well, what kind of leaders are creating? What, what are really, what's this really about? What are we doing here, right? Does that make sense? So it's like, if the most public face is Boris Johnson, then at some level we have to interrogate, like, because it's not just like Boris Johnson, it's also David Cameron. And there is, you know, they do have a common recklessness with power. And the one thing they both have in common, I have to say, is they seem to, they seem to enjoy power for its own sake. What's that about? And, you know, because, oh, there's, oh, I know some lovely old tones. Well, where are they? Like, why aren't they talking? Like, speak up. The whole point is, if, if not everyone is like that, well, where are they? Where are the, where are the open letters? Where are the kind of, where are the, you know, where are the thousand, you know, when, 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 there's a, when there's a critique of COVID policy, you have a thousand scientists signing an open letter going, we disagree with this, it's this. What have we heard? We've heard silence, actually. We've heard silence. And to me, it's like, if you feel being misrepresented, then speak on it. And when I wrote this book, my whole thing was, I want to talk about all the nuance of it. I want to talk about a place that is, you know, the reason these schools attract fantastic amounts of loyalty and they're defended in the public sphere is because they give the students so much. And I was given so much. And I talk about that in the book. But then I also say, there are times when a system that's good for you is not good for other people. And we need to talk about that as well. So I talk about my fondness. I talk about the people that were good to me, but also there's the problems. There's the, you know, there's the the lack of um, the lack of empathy for people outside your circle. And there's a story that I tell, which illustrates this. I think there's a train that you can get from from Eton. It's a metaphor, really, more than anything else. It's only a train, but it's a metaphor. You go from the station. I think it's uh, Winter and Eton Riverside, and you go to. It take within within like I think half an hour you're in uh, Putney. You can basically go from the back door of Eton to Putney and never like just go through the Thames Valley. You just well you can kind of go through it, but you don't really get off. You don't engage with it. A lot of these people have been to a prep school in the countryside, then they've been to Eton. They go home on that train and they don't engage with people from around like unless it's fleeting. Um, they have their weekend. They have their, a lot of them don't have like you know interaction with people from beyond a social class then you go to uni you share a house with your mates from school then you go and work in the city and you've basically never engaged with the bulk of people right now that 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 has its own issues but in terms of it's not wrong it has its own issues that but then what happens is that pipeline that pipeline then takes you from you know city and then you might like make a bit of money in the city then you go into politics you've literally never engaged at any point beyond like surface level conversation with people whose lives you want to be in charge of you've never never navigated that see that's the date that's the insidious thing about it it's not and even like people go oh etonians are like taught confidence like that is a misconception but it's not people's fault because how would they know they didn't go there so what i explain in the book as i said well the, the architecture does that people don't come up to you and go and this is this is why people get defensive who go to places like eating because they're like no one told us we were the best and now we're going everyone's going Everyone tells you in class that you're the geniuses, you're the future prime ministers. No one tells you that. This is why I say in my book, the architecture tells you that. When you open, there's a book called, um, there's, a, there's a book called Fixtures. When you open this book that you're given at the start of each year, 
and it's got the names of all the kind of um, the students there. You look at the surnames, and the first thing you see is, oh my goodness, that surname. Oh, that is, it sounds like the chocolate company. That surname. Oh, it sounds like the uh, commodities company. And then you're like, oh no, it is. And so those are the children, the people that own those companies, right? Own them. And some of the surnames you haven't heard, then some you'll find out later. So the architecture of the school is showing you that this is, you're part of that prestigious world, so you can't help but think you'll succeed. And also like the, the clothing, the uniform, you're wearing, what's the word? Um, and this is not me going, we shouldn't wear these uniforms. I'm just saying, I'm trying to explain how people acquire confidence at Eton. The first day you go out at Eton, you're wearing this uniform. I don't know if you've seen, it's like a sort of a tailcoat. Like it's the suit that most people wear. This is probably the smartest outfit most people ever wear in their lives, right? You wear that on your wedding day and never again. We wore that at a formative point in our lives every day for five years. You're dressed like you're going to get married every day for five years. Psychologically, what does that do to you? Now, the first couple of days you wear it, you're like, this is super weird and awkward, right? And then you have to walk past traffic and everyone's watching you walk past traffic as if you're going to get married at the age of 13. You do that for five years. By the time you hit your 18, the age of 18, you're swaggering because you're bossing it. You're basically wearing like you're super confident wearing. That's why... But by the, if you do that for five years, by the time you put a suit on, when you go to like a, a, a company event or like a, that's why an Etoni can go into like an event and like talk to a CEO, like it's no big deal because you've been wearing a suit for five years. That's completely mad. Do you think also why it's why Boris Johnson disregards marriage so much? It's like, oh, it's another day at school. It's why <laughs> it's like, oh, well, oh, another day with the suit on. <laughs> Boris Johnson, that's, that's a great, you know what? <laughs> Boris Johnson is a great example of somebody who uses power moves, right? Boris Johnson is a classic example of someone who is like, and British society has got this thing, Tin, and where it's like, it has this safety valve. There's always one joker. There's always room for one alpha. And, you know, it was Boris Johnson. It was Dominic Cummings. It was, uh, who's the other one? Um, Steve Hilton. There's always one person just to play by the rules, the renegade, and they're allowed to do whatever they like. And there's only really one or two of them at any one time, if that makes sense. And that is also how the class system is structured. It's like, it's, it's a pyramid scheme, right? It's a pyramid scheme because everyone else is the loser apart from that, like, that few at the top, I think. But it's, it's, I mean, it's so interesting you discussing it like that because it sounds like such a sheltered existence. And I wonder if that's why that being that, be, being that joker who can be the, the power in that classroom actually then doesn't translate at all when you leave. You know, Boris is sort of renowned for being funny and the papers might tell us that he's hilarious and, cla- and a clown, but most of the rest of us look at him and go, what an absolute prat. Like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't come across. And I wonder if that's because in your sheltered existence, you're appealing to the people who, you know, you, you know and understand, but then also they are also the other people that hold the power, which is where I, I suppose the problem comes in that they still elevate you regardless. That's perfectly, perfectly articulated. Like there's a type of, you know, that kind of charm, that kind of currency you know, actually, here's a better example. Here's an example I was going to give, but I'll give a better example. Um, it's a bit like, you know, when like there used to be like, in, a, in before there were that many Brits in New York, it was like, the Brits are coming, the Brits are coming. It was a big thing to go there and have a British accent. Hmm. Actually, it's much, less, it's much less the case now. Like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, going to America with a British accent was like, oh my God, the Brits. And there still is a bit of that. But now it's like, it's much more like, no, that shtick doesn't run here so much anymore. Like the, the, the luster has faded. And I think there was a time when much more of the UK was enthralled to that kind of like joker banter charm. And now I think it's a, it, it is, I think it is a sort of a minority, but it's a persistent minority. 
And that's the crowd that he's playing to. He's not, when he's making, you know, this, when you see him sometimes make speeches, Boris Johnson, like he is dying to bust out a joke. He's dying to use a bit of Latin. You can just see it. It's just his energy, right? But that, and he did that in a certain context, a dinner party circuit. He's basically, dinner, he's an after dinner party speaker and a blogger who got over-promoted. That's what he is. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's an over-promoted after dinner party speaker. But the thing is, is your, the way you've articulated it is so right. Power has congealed and been concentrated in so few hands that now that's the only audience he needs. Well, and also he's, you know, sheltered. I mean, and, and I'm saying this from a point of view of a, a comedian and all we hear about is that he tells the same stories again and again and again. If he was actually a good comedian and had to earn his way to have audiences, he'd have learned that you adapt and you change and you play to your audience and you write more material and you have an honesty to it. And he hasn't even bothered to do that for his less important things. No, no, which no. then makes you really think, wow, well, why on earth are you in a, a position where you, you have control over... Things that change, you know, millions of lives. lives, millions of lives. Mm. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But the way I tried to articulate in the book is, there's. I, I tried to make the book as as, as re- not relatable because I think it's not always easy to relate. But I tried to be as vivid as possible in painting how ordinary people that go through a system, because we are all ordinary. We're just, you know, we're, how kids that go through a system can emerge with a worldview that is closed off in crucial respects. And it's that sense of shelter, of being sheltered, I think I really want to emphasize. Um, because it is sheltered. And listen, I mean, everyone wants to create, ironically, safe spaces for their kids. But the damage and the danger comes from what, I think Donald Rumsfeld will people, because, you know, Rumsfeld has, I mean, many things to criticize him for, countless things. The one thing he got absolutely right was the unknown unknowns. Politicians who go around and talk about things they don't know they don't know. And I think that unfortunately, someone like Boris Johnson is an example of someone who has has built a career on the unknown unknowns. There are things he talks about that he doesn't know about, and there's things that he doesn't know he doesn't know. And most importantly, he doesn't care. He doesn't care because he doesn't need to. He's never needed to. Um, So yeah, that's, that's why we are where we are. Well, that's, I was going to say that the part of, uh, you know, your blurb about the book is that you, being at Eton, you un, you saw the beginnings of Brexit, which is something you didn't realise, obviously, until many years when, later when Brexit did happen. And is, is, that, is that what you saw, this lack of accountability or a lack of care that, uh, amongst fellow pupils? I wondered what it was at the Eton that made you go, oh, I've, I've been able to put this into some context as to how... There was one guy in particular who hated the EU. And I was like... No one even really talks about the EU. And he talked about the EU all the time, all the time. And it was weird. He was like a kind of like Cassandra. You know, it was, it was a, not, not Cassandra, it's the opposite, whatever. Like, he's like, he, was a, he was a herald. Of, he was, a, he was an um, augur of doom. It was like a Greek chorus. Like, at different points in my life, I kept thinking about him, ranting about the EU and going, oh my God, it's like his voice got louder and louder into focus. He hated the EU. Mid-teens, I won't name his name, but... Everyone will know who this guy was like. And he was always going, oh, the EU, this, the, that. And then you went on, you're like, oh my God. Then you saw that some of the people in that school as well had parents who were quite big against the EU. And it was a dominant part of their conversation. And you saw it right there. You saw the roots of it. You saw like, um, and this guy, I'll just never forget. Like he, it was all you'd see him talk about in public. And it was like, my goodness, if people this from families, this wealthy, this powerful, 
hate the EU that much, it, it could be in trouble. It could be in trouble. And there were only a couple of people that really spoke out about that hate. But you know how it is in these environments where there's two people speaking out and hating it, and there's a lot more beneath the surface. And that's how it played out, yeah. I was going to say, I assume, and, and you know, um, I could very very well be wrong, but I'm assuming it's not just the visceral hatred for you. It must also be the exceptionalism, or as we've discussed, not even exceptionalism, the, the, you know, the sheltered um, sort of feelings they don't have a clue about how these things will affect other people. But so, the, yeah, that, that, uh, what, yeah, what, there was the, a lot the, of that Brexit was... Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I, I want to jump in there. I want, you're right. They come together. So the hatred didn't come from a place. It came from a, a, a hatred of being dominated. It ha- came from a hatred of the, the feeling that the EU is a colonial power. Irony, irony. The EU is a colonial power trying to dominate the UK, even though the UK got almost everything it ever demanded from the EU, had the best concessions, the best carve out. And that's where the hate came from. It came from a sense of like, we're Britannia, we're being subjugated to this mainland. That's where it came from. Even though if you look at all the legislation, the majority of it was waved through with almost no edits when the, when, when the Brits basically got what they asked for, what they wanted. Um, and the sense of how it would affect ordinary people, absolutely no sense of how it would affect you know, the working class. A lot of people, if you ask them what poverty was, they'd be like, oh, poverty is where you've got that guy, that nice guy in the village that drives the school bus. And he was given a job because he was broke. That's that's the poverty for a lot of people. It's like, oh, it's feudal. It's feudal where people live on the person's estate. And they, you know, they, they've always got a bit of milk and butter left over. So they go down to the cottage and like, that's what a lot of people see poverty as. Like, they've never been scared to check their bank account for months on end. They've never like looked in the fridge and had nothing there. They've never like known somebody who's gone without a meal, you know, once or twice a day so that the kids can eat. They've never had that. They've never known it. Or like, you know, someone who's basically put, they've watered down the milk in the cornflakes because they're like too broke to get that. They've never known that. And then they want to go and run the country. Does that, I mean, that, that must give you a skewed perspective about what's important because, you know, it's one of the things, and I was reading your brilliant article um, about, you know, that you wrote back in March last year about you can't say rule Britannia to a virus, which I thought was it's just, <laughs> even that line was just very perfect. But that British, British exceptionalism of like, well, we're going to be the best at defeating this, but we're also not going to really bother doing it because surely we could just manage it. And, and that whole attitude, and I think like, for example, my life, I generally worry about paying the rent uh, that my daughter doesn't impale herself on something that, you know, that, that we've got enough food and all these sorts of worries. If you don't have those worries because you've got a nanny and everything's paid for is suddenly then your whole focus just on we've got to make britain the best thing you know that you you get these sort of worries that aren't real uh, i suppose yeah well it's funny i've actually been reading of all things you're gonna laugh but i've been reading finding freedom the making of a modern royal family um harry and Meghan. (laughs) i've been reading because i'm I'm interested in an anthropology of these societies and what's fascinating you read this book you're like my goodness, nobody in this book ever worries about money. Nobody worries about money. Like, if you never have to worry about money, like, you know, shout out to Megan. Megan worked very hard to get her play, her, herself to a place where she didn't have to worry about money. Like, you know, her acting career, she did really well out of that. But, um, you know, everyone else in the book, pretty much, that you encounter, every main character, no one's ever had to worry about money for generations on end. For generations. So what do you have left to fill your time with? You know, if it's not romance, if it's not, what do you actually have to, in a world where you've basically won that life? And we don't talk about this enough, really. When you don't have anything left to strive for, 
you're right, then other concerns take over. All your material needs are met. So here's a classic example of, um, you know, all the scrounger stuff, all this stuff about like, you know, scrounger of the welfare state benefits scroungers. As we've learned painfully in the last few years, so much of what the far right and the hard right do is projection. So when they say benefit scroungers, what they really mean is they're talking about themselves. So a lot of the people talk about benefit scroungers. They own vast estates where they hang out for like weekends on end and just get hammered. And they've got some that got their day jobs, but fundamentally, they're absolutely minted, right? When they talk about scroungers, they mean people in their own social circles who aren't working very hard, but have massive concessions, have massive like, you know, inheritances. And that's the only world they know. That's why it's so easy for them to imagine benefit scroungers, because they see around them the whole time people that basically don't have to like kill themselves for a living. People don't realise that's why. They're like, why does it persist, this myth? Well, because it's easy for people that don't have to work all the time to believe. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And we'll be back with Musa in a short minute. But first, the government is launching a very, very long-awaited social care review to change, as it says, a system that is failing young people. Yes, yes, I know on day one they could just say, if we all resign, that should fix it and then job done. But as we know, that won't happen. The review is going to look at early years help, child protection, fostering and kinship care, care homes and the family support measures needed to prevent children from having to enter care. Now, already you can see why there are concerns that this is being done by a government whose Prime Minister said money spent on child abuse investigations was spaffed up a wall and who has left a lot of families in need of support, not just by his policies, but also his balls. You may also be concerned that they're looking at supporting children, except when it comes to feeding them, and the Education Secretary and cartoon train whistle Gavin Williamson has said it'll be part of the golden thread that runs through everything we're doing to level up society. Yes, exactly, Gavin. Everything you do is hanging by a thread. But there are other reasons that social work leaders and charities are worried about this review too. Firstly, children's services are mainly fucked because of austerity cuts to council budgets, poverty increases meaning more families need them, and a rising number of kids being taken into care. 
The first real step to tackling those things would mean undoing all the things the Conservatives are most fond of doing, except when they pretend someone else did them. So the concern is that they won't address any of the things that make them look awful, which is all of it, and instead will use the review to water down the safeguards introduced in the Childcare Act 1989 and allow private firms to be in charge of lots of stuff they have absolutely no experience of and will no doubt have G4S employ foster parents who never turn up or Serco who get kids muddled up and send them to the wrong address, all from a theme park car park. Also worrying is that they've appointed a man called Josh McAllister to chair the review. Aside from looking like an amalgamation of every apprentice candidate ever, McAllister is the chief exec of Frontline, a company that fast-tracks graduates into social work jobs before they've had any experience that they could use to do the jobs properly. He launched that company in 2013 with money from then-education secretary and now remnants of a body odour candle Michael Gove. It's chaired by a former head of Number 10 policy under David Cameron, and basically by appointing McAllister, there are big worries that the review won't be that independent from government at all, and that they already know how they want it to go. And that's obviously in any way it can to benefit their pals, and not really kids at all, presumably until Marcus Rashford campaigns against it, and they have to change their minds for a month before doing it all over again. I'm going to talk about this a lot more in future weeks and I hope to have a guest on to talk about it very, very soon. But all I'm saying is that while this is an area that really, really needs a review and action to make things better for young people and children, it's really worrying that we're leaving it to a government that includes an education secretary that thought the best thing for kids was for all of them to be in school during a major pandemic and a prime minister who doesn't even know how many kids he has or where they are. To be honest, I'd sooner trust the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And now, back to Musa. I suppose it must be the same with the, you know, we've had this thing this week of it's, it's the public's fault for, for COVID again and COVID spreading. And actually the, the majority of research shows that most people are obeying the rules. Right. But the, the people calling it out are the, the MPs who are regularly getting caught out for not obeying the rules. Right, because they live in such a sheltered world. They can't imagine, they don't know anyone outside that world, really, not, not beyond acquaintance. And so they project their own experience onto the rest of the world. Now, that's something that all human beings do to some degree. But the danger is when you're part of such a sheltered community where power is increasingly held in, 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 small, in a small amount of hands, that experience is so far from the norm that then you project policy from it as if it's universal. You're, it's the, you're incapable of viewing anyone as behaving differently from you. It's all projection, all this stuff. Is there something about what you're taught at Eton, though, that makes you think this is all right because I mean I suppose for, for me one of the big things of school was it was all about working hard and it was all about you know working to to get somewhere and and do something and how you've got to learn and and you know and and so much of our stories and everything are about the underdog that fights their way through all the films that we love are about the person that started at nothing and gets to the top and and to come out of a schooling system and actually not bother with any of that that must there must be something that you're uh, that you're told, or or a different way of teaching that that's causing that. But we're taught all that too. That's the thing. There's no having been in like the state system. I was in the state school system, and then I was in the public school one. We're all taught we're underdogs. This is the thing. Look at Rule Britannia. Rule Britannia is an underdog song. Britain shall never be slaves. Well, Britain had them. Like we're all taught. Everyone is taught actually quite similar things, right? Whether it's a North London State School or Eton. But the, the myths we're taught are dangerous because we're not underdogs. We dominated. So you will never study. Like we, we studied, um, you know, the Tudors and the Stuarts. I could probably tell you the names of the individual wives of Henry the, Henry VIII. I could tell the names. But I couldn't tell you about the scramble for Africa. You weren't taught about this huge gap in British colonial history. You weren't taught about it. 
Not really, like, you know, empire, you'd spend a tiny amount of time. Those omissions, not only at Eton, but in, you know, across the British schooling system are deliberate omissions. How can you not talk about it? Like, wait, no one ever thought about, when we talk about the, Great, the First World War, Second World War, it's like, wait a minute, why are they fighting in North Africa? Why is Montgomery out there? No one ever talked about it. Why are the Germans fighting the Brits in North Africa? Why is that happening? No one talked about it. You think how weird that is, is it a deliberate omission? Now, there's no difference between Eton, what Eton is taught and what um, they're taught in North London. Of course, there is in terms of the quality of teaching. Let's not, I'm not trying to like, dispute that. It's more like the people at Eton had a disproportionate amount of power in their families before they went to schools like that. You've got a disproportionate amount of power in your hands and then you go to a school where you're being taught that your country's always been the underdog and it's always stuck up for itself against the odds. What are you going to come out believing? You're going to come out believing the fundamental goodness of your country as a project because all nation states are projects to some extent. And that's why there's this loyalty to the system. It's People sometimes look at, oh my God, Etonians are a class apart. Actually, it's so much in similar we have with other people. But the people that come through that school basically end up with a supercharged loyalty to the myth because they're the supreme beneficiaries of the myth. You go to a state school in North London and you're taught, we're the underdogs who raise ourselves up. You're like, yeah, okay, the underdog thing is great, but fundamentally there's something a bit wrong with this country. You go to a school like Eton, where your family, generally speaking, has got more wealth than most places, well, wealth, and you learn that same underdog myth, you're not seeing so many of the downsides. It's all British bulldog. It's all Britain is a proud voice on the world stage. It's all proud this, proud that, proud this, proud that. And no one's like, hang on a minute. Where did that wealth come from? This trading empire, what was that actually? Because you study, you will study the Vikings slaughtering left, right, centre. You will study what the Vikings did in Lindisfarne in the 8th century when they went into the, they went and they saw those poor monks and they raided it and they slaughtered everyone. You will read about how the Vikings slaughtered everyone. You'll read about, you'll learn about that from 1200 years ago, but you will not read about what happened 70 years ago. You won't read about Operation Legacy when the British Empire destroyed colonial records for 20 years straight. You won't read that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right in that, you know, it was, uh, someone I spoke to his podcast a couple of years ago now, but all about the trying to bring knowledge of the transatlantic slave trade into schooling. And, and I realised that I had never learnt any of it. I'd never been told. And I don't think I was even aware of it until I was in my 20s because it's an element of history. It's not really in the museums. It's not in schooling. And it's entirely ignored from British history. You can name the 12 disciples. You can name what the three kings took. You can name all these details all around history, specific details, right? You can talk about the English Civil War. Um, the Reformation, 1642, all of that. But you don't know the most basic facts about what slavery was and who did it. And you learn all this stuff about, oh my God, wow, like Britain ended slavery, abolished slavery. Well, oh my God, well, you never learn who did slavery. Oh, it was the Arabs did it too. Like, hang on a minute. Yeah, but who did this bit of slavery? Who did this? Oh, well, we never, and it's actually, it's incredible and it is an omission so staggering as to be utterly deliberate. Yeah, it's it's so strange that when when people learn it and they they don't immediately realise that it's it's not that much of a boast if you've put out the fire that you started. <laughs> if you, no, if you're, if you're the one that's that that, that stamped out the last smouldering remains of the blaze you, you started. Yeah, a five hundred year festival of slaughter 
a 500-year festival of slaughter, and you come along at the end and hand out soft drinks. But that's flippant. That's silly. I know, being flippant. But you end the festival after 500 years. And that's kind of what it's about. It's like the, the whole of history. And that is such a... You're seeing a backlash against it because people have been brought up on that myth. This is the thing, Tin, and like... It was difficult for me to write the book, not only because it was revisiting all these things, but it was me like examining, hang on a minute. That surname belongs to so-and-so family. So like, you'd know, I would know people. But the thing is, everyone, here's the thing, everyone knew. People go like, ah, oh, that person. He built, they built arms for that, for that movement, for that genocide. They basically funded that. They built the weapons for it. Oh, that person, yeah, they their great grandfather like led an, led like uh, parts of the empire. That but you'll know the names. People talk about it. This is the thing in that world. Everybody knows. It's not like some kind of great. It's funny because the history, weirdly enough, anyone knows the history. I talked to my great granddad for a couple of talked to my granddad for a couple of minutes. Like this great granddad isn't that long ago. Like I know what my great granddad did. I know what his name was. I know all about him. Right. I know about him. So they know what their great granddads did, and. I knew my granddad, right? So I knew about him. They've got grandparents who knew all these stories about slavery, right? That they would have been told because I talked to my granddad a lot, a lot. We went to football together, right? So they know that history is in those places, in those families, and it's not coming out. And that is what is so interesting, I think. There's something I want to just quickly mention. I know go for it, but I want to mention this very quickly. I sent a tweet a few months ago during Black Lives Matter, and it said, maybe the reason why so many people are upset at statues being pulled down is that for them it feels like someone's destroying the family photo album and a friend of mine got in touch with me and she said Musa I showed this tweet to friends of mine in the UK and they went quiet and they were like no he's absolutely right that's why we feel defensive because we know that relatives of ours own human beings and that's why we're defensive. And that tweet, she said, that tweet was a joke, but you meant it real and it was spot on. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great on. tweet. I can't believe I missed that one. Um, <laughs> so just think, you know, I, I think that a lot of, there was also, uh, and I, I, I don't mean to undermine that tweet whatsoever, but I think there was also a big part where a lot of people just had no idea what these people had done. And as far as they were concerned, and, and, I'm, and I'm not uh, by any means yeah, uh, letting no off idea, yeah. the racists who did know, but they, there were people that did know and were angry for really, you know, awful reasons because uh, they were approving of the racism and, and the slavery that happened. But there were also a lot of people who just went, oh, that nice statue's gone. And I didn't, and it was just of a man who has a hall and we like the hall that we go see music in. And there was a complete lack of awareness because they just were never yeah. taught, you know. Never taught. No, I want to make that clear as well. Like a lot of people just didn't know any of this. And if you think about it, why would you believe it? Why wouldn't you be defensive? You know, you see a school called Colston's, you see this and that. You're like, at the Imperial War Museum, well, what, what do you mean by empire? You know, the, or the, these, these museums that have all these artefacts and people are like, yeah, that was just stolen. What's that great, the great James Acasta thing on like, you know, <laughs> these museums aren't people like going to look at artifacts. They're like a bunch of people from other countries going, we want our stuff back. Yeah. Like, and no, brilliant, brilliant sequence that he did. But I think it's something in that people just not knowing. Yeah. The British museum is essentially this collection of things that we've nicked. (laughs) Well, and the problem is, the problem is of course, like national identity is such a 
powerful thing, right? But it's also fragile. And all of a sudden, people are forced to confront, you know, what the empire was because we see it through the benefit. You know, it's all like, oh, we won the war, we beat the Germans in the wars, we beat the Germans in the football. That's our thing, right, in the UK. In England specifically, that's our thing. You know, we're the, we're the good people of history, right? And you start peeling back some of the layers and you're like, oh, we did some pretty bad stuff, you know. Like, if, we are, if, we're gonna, if, if it's we that beat the Germans, then it's also we who did some of the other bad stuff and we don't want to own that. So I, it's this weird situation of either we own it or we move beyond it and go, well, we're not about that anymore. And of course, most people, as we've seen in the last few years, would rather stick to the myths, actually. Just so, depressing. so depressing such a depressing thing to do and especially you know and, and i know i'm talking to you you're currently in in berlin aren't you in in a country where they did go right we're just gonna absolutely <laughs> apologize for that and never have you know all the kind of world war ii history it's it's yeah you know, now illegal in, in germany well it's it? funny in germany because germany like we still have a challenge we still have a challenge with our far right in germany we absolutely do don't get me wrong but what i would say as well is um what we have here in Germany is also um, a refusal to engage in like that wartime rhetoric. So when it came to like COVID, Chancellor Merkel was like, this isn't a war effort. Don't call it that. Don't, this language is very dangerous language because when you start saying something's a war effort, then you're basically saying there are some people should be sacrificed. That's what it's basically, that's what it's meant. And the thing is, there's been very powerful messages by the conservatives. They know what they're doing. When they call it a war effort, they're basically saying there'll be inevitable casualties. So if a ward starts like the Battle of the Somme, well, that's just part of it. And what they're very clever at doing, the, the cleverest thing the Conservative Party do is getting themselves let off the hook. They're really, really good at appealing to nostalgia and empire and war in a way that resonates very deeply with voters. You can just see that by the poll ratings. People aren't blaming the, the, the party for this. They're blaming individuals. Been very, they're blaming the foot soldiers, they're blaming the infantry for not being sharp enough shooters. That's what they're blaming them for. Yeah, and we're clapping all the heroes uh, as we send them to the, the front line, which is... Exactly, so yeah, it's it's so brilliantly orchestrated. I mean, it's they're not very good at that many things, but they're very, very good at shifting blame. They're, they're masters at that. Ugh, the one thing they're good at. It's just awful. <laughs> all, the, all the things. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just just go back to, to your book. And, and uh, it's a sort of big question. I know we, we discussed before we recorded this that you're probably going to change my question once I ask it. But, you know, you've had this Eton education. You're writing about it now and, and, and sort of remembering it. Do you feel... Do you feel that private schools should exist? It's a point of contention constantly in the UK. And, uh, you know, one that I... I, I'm, I'm not certain that they should, but I wondered how you feel having having gone through it all and, and writing about it again. I mean, the way I always answer this question, because I get asked now and again to like, because you know, I've written this book, so people assume I have an answer to it. I would just simply say this. How healthy is it for a society to have decisions made by an increasingly small group of people? you know, uh, effectively an oligarchy. And the private school system has to be accountable for that. It has to be accountable because the funneling, you know, even, even the conversation online, there's, um, there's always a few historians that point this out. There's a couple of amazing, amazing followers on Twitter, Prof Dave Andrus and Lotte Lydia. Um, they're amazing follows. 
And they often point out the conversation about like Oxford and Cambridge, the obsession that people have with talking about where they went to university because it's Oxford and Cambridge and the obsessive. I just think that the, I, I had an incredible education, an incredible education at private school. At the same time, I'm not convinced that the benefits of this system outweigh the disadvantages. I'm not convinced at all. Like, if I look at the the lack of empathy, and lack of empathy is not something unique to people that went to private school. It's not. At the same time, the funneling of a section of society off, you know, in terms of jobs, opportunities, to a vanishingly small section of society, to me, is not good for a, a modern society or, or any society. Um, you know, I'm, I'm shocked, actually, when I see the misrepresentation of private schools in these high positions, because I'm like, how can you legislate? How can you, because policy isn't just a question of like looking at the numbers. It's also about lived experience. And it shocks me to see decisions being made for millions of people by a group of people that have never experienced the consequences and never will. And I think that, you know, as I say in my book, the private school system is a part of that ecosystem, but it's a huge part. Um, In its current form, I think it needs urgent review like urgent review. I'm not sure we'll get it with a conservative point having an 80-seat majority. Of course it won't. But it needs urgent review because it's, I don't think it's helping the country. There's, um, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of opposed to it for, for a number of reasons, including the, the fact that if they've got charity status, which baffles me. And, um, but, but also like just looking at things like Finland, who, and I'm going to misquote this because I haven't checked any of the facts recently, but it's been several years now they made private education, uh, they, they scrapped it, and um, the sort of results of having not only being able to put the money and resources into the incredibly well-funded state school education that yeah, everyone gets, yeah. but also, that, you know, people have talked about the fact that children of all classes, um, of wealth classes, are mixing together, and that it allows for greater empathy and understanding of each other. And that's and great, and that's great, yeah. That. I think that's great. I think that's amazing. I think that's brilliant. I think if we could go back to the beginning of time and private schools didn't exist, I think we'd have a better society for it. I do think we would. I just do think we would. I think it breaks down. You know, I, I didn't go to Eton for the class system. I went for the best education I could see. And I saw that on TV in the way it was, you know, obviously talked about. It's like, my goodness, like small class sizes, super smart people that go on to do like really, you know, big things in the world that was really attractive but that can be attractive in, in any environment that that that's the thing you can get you can if you had a you know systems that's very well funded state schools across the board everyone could have a taste of that like everyone could be good at something have a different skill have a different you know that would be a that to me is a a healthy functioning like thriving society and you look at germany we there is obviously elitism that manifests in all societies, but they don't have that same thing here. I was talking to a friend the other day, um, shout out to my friend Sasha. Sasha was like, Musa, I just have no interest in your book at all. I'm sorry to say I don't have any interest in it. The, what, the book about Berlin that I've written, he goes, I want to read that. But the book about the class system in England, is like, I have no interest. It's like, no, Sasha, that's good. I like that you don't care about it. That in a way we shouldn't care about it. It shouldn't be, because it shouldn't be a thing. It shouldn't, shouldn't exist the denial of opportunity to people just because they happen to be born in the wrong postcode you know a dramatic example of that my family are from the north of uganda my dad was a um consultant surgeon 
And the only reason that we got out of the North Uganda, I think, is because he was, he was blessed. I mean, I'm not religious, but I use that term in the sense of like, he was gifted, he was lucky. He was lucky that he was a genius when it came to medicine. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't have got a scholarship out, right? And you go to the north of Uganda, the village my family's from, and they've been struggling for like ever since the war. They've been struggling. And I'm here in Berlin living my life. And if I was, you know, my, my dad's brother was, you know, he was a, just a normal dude. My, that was it. Then I'd be, I'd be in that village. I, and I wouldn't have made it out. And that's our class system, what it rewards, who it rewards, who it elevates. And that's not just a thing that's unique to the UK, but the UK has a kind of supercharged version of it. Um, and I went back to that village in the north of Uganda and it broke my heart because I'm like, that's the class system. They elevate someone and everyone else stays behind and you don't look back. You're encouraged never to look back. You're encouraged to raise yourself up and to aspire and move upwards. But who and what are you leaving behind? And one of the stories I tell in the book very quickly is about, we had this amazing reverend at our local church, Methodist church, back when I was still a churchgoer. And he was amazing. Then he moved away and the church completely changed. It wasn't as good. It wasn't as welcoming because the reverend that came in wasn't as good as the last guy. And the difference between Eton as a school and other private schools is that they, keep, they get to keep their reverence and the state, the state schools don't. State schools don't get to keep their reverence. And so generations of kids don't have that same love and care and attention that I got and that investment in the future. That actually, that breaks my heart about the UK, to be honest. That breaks yeah. my heart. Horrible, really horrible. Um, I'm very excited about reading the book, and um, I, I wanted to sort of ask you as a, as a nearly final question because um, I've we talked for ages. Brilliant, and I, I haven't even asked you about your other two books. Um, Sorry, but, the, <laughs> but I just your writing in general. I, I love your writing, and, and I've been a fan of it um, since I, I first. I think I first read your piece in the Good Immigrant, um, and, and oh, sort of then you. followed all your all your stuff from there, which is just obviously an incredible book. Um, but you want what I think you have a, an incredible uh, ability to do is just sort of puncture hyperbole and. Um, often kind of really summarise a situation very succinctly, often in a tweet or in an article um, <laughs> that has otherwise been kind of caught up in a lot of rhetoric. And I and I just wondered if you're, um, I was thinking sort of like on your recent post on performative gawping, which I really enjoyed. Um, <laughs> Thank you. All of them help, well, help me step back and look at things slightly differently. And I, and I wonder if you feel like, are we just sort of too absorbed in the drama of everything? And how do you maintain the willpower not to get drawn into it all? Or is that just a natural ability that you have? Oh my God. Okay. So, um, first of all, thank you. Um, cause I realized I've talked quite a lot, but I think first your questions have been great, but I think I haven't, this is probably the first big interview I've done about this book. I think this oh, is wow. the first, oh my God, this, I'm, I'm this is the first, yeah, this is, this is the first interview about one of them. My goodness. Um, so first I want to thank you for like allowing me this space to talk. And secondly, for like your really kind words, cause that means everything. So because a long, for a long time as a writer, I didn't earn a lot of money. I was blogging. I'm still earning a lot of money, but I'm doing better than I was before, thanks to people supporting what I do. But it means so much to have you say that because for a long time, the only thing keeping me going was the fact that people would say, thank you, the way I articulate things. And when I write, okay, so where it comes from, I'm the middle child of five, right? So you're mediating in the family. So from an early age, I was the mediator. That's what it's always been. It's partly who I am. Secondly, being at the private school world, you grow up with people living in the same house, so you can't be having feuds the whole time. You've got to measure. If you, you argue with someone, it's not like 
state school where you, you argue with someone and then you, you go home in the day and you come out the next day and it kind of it's either died down or you know you're living with people for five years so you've got to find a way to actually articulate you can't always be flying off the handle right because you just don't have the energy for like constant warfare whether we're all caught up in stuff i don't blame people for being glued to their phones first because phones were designed to be glued to but also because we're in a traumatic time in history so i've got to be easy on people the way that i tweet is i try to always tweet I do criticise individuals now and again. I do. I generally criticise the ones that can take it. So if, if I mention people by their name, it's normally like a kind of Farage type figure who's so public and so comfortable in that world that it's not going to cause them psychological issues if I critique them in public because I'm always conscious of the duty of care on Twitter. I don't want to be going around like attacking people's psyche that's fragile. So if I critique someone, it's normally done in that context. And I always try to critique someone in the wider context. It's not just Farage is terrible. It's Farage, as a symptom of our society, having a real problem. And the phrases that I use on Twitter, stuff like performative gawping, which I use as an example of people going, I can't believe racism's that bad. I try to create these phrases on Twitter that people can use in conversation beyond Twitter. So they can go like, that's an example of performative gawping. Or that's an example of what I would call uh, racial gatekeeping where someone who's got very, very hard right or even far right political positions, like someone like Candace Owens goes, I can't have those positions because I'm from a particular demographic. I can't. Or Pretty Patel doing it with immigration. I'm the, I'm the child of immigrants. How can I be against immigration type thing? So I, I, I deliberately use those things almost like I want people to be able to diagnose social conditions through being helped by stuff that I put on Twitter, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's incredibly useful. And, I, and I've already used performative gawping in this podcast, so it clearly works. And so, oh, my God, really? <laughs> yeah, oh, well, yeah, well, this one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this one, what, yeah, just what, now. Yeah, no, yeah, sorry, I haven't one, used yeah, it again. Yeah. I've let you down no, there. You were hoping I'd used no. it on a previous episode. <laughs> no, because no, I, I, got, I got a comment from someone saying, we saw someone use your thing, one of your phrases, uh, racial gatekeeping, and they didn't mention you, they didn't tag you. I was like, no, that's good. Yeah, I don't want people. The strength of an idea is when it goes beyond the person that initiated it. I don't care. I don't want. I actually would rather that person used it, and I didn't know about it because then it's like catching on in a really important way. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, just when they when people say it aloud, you can always just go, "Yeah, I, I created that. That's my." <laughs> no, I just <laughs> you can just get I just sit there and smirk. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, like that, that that purple devil emoji. That's me just sitting there and smirking. <laughs> brilliant absolutely brilliant um well look, it's been absolute pleasure talking to you and, and the one the one last question which is what i ask every single guest on this podcast and have done for all the years we've been doing it um which is simply that apart from yourself and your upcoming books that i will i'll plug heavily we didn't talk about in the end it was all about love but i understand that it's about berlin and uh, the far right and so politics as well but maybe another time um yeah but apart from yourself just what writers journalists who are you going to right now for either information or escapism and writing who are your favorite people that you would recommend uh, listeners check out wow well actually before i before i go into that i will do that in a second i want to say very quickly um if in the end it's all about love is basically a sequel to my essay on the good immigrant so it basically begins exactly where the essay on the good immigrant stops so the good immigrant stops with me moving to germany and the new book starts at, at, the big, at the end of that essay. So if anyone wants to check it out, that's what it's about. In terms of writers I'm checking out right now, I want to give a shout out to Nika Shukla, who wrote this incredible memoir called Brown Baby. Um, it's basically about raising um, 
child of like, sort of, I suppose, uh, English heritage, but also uh, Indian heritage in the times we live in, primarily it's really just about fatherhood, parenthood, and what that means. Not just fatherhood, actually, it's about parenthood and what that means, and grief. Uh, it's a gorgeous book. Um, shout out to Nikesh. I also want to shout out um, Teju Cole, huge influence, Every Day is for the Thief. Taye Selassie, uh, T-A-I-Y-E, Selassie, spelled A, sorry, spelled S-E-L-A-S-I, and Sharon Dodawa Otu, surname spelled D-O-D-U-A, and then O-T-O-O, Sharon Dodawa Otu. They're like my main writers at the moment. Um, just incredible in terms of their humanity, range of writing, the texture in what they're doing. And there's the old school writers that inspired me from way back, which is like Sylvia Plath, Kurt Vonnegut, Ernest Hemingway. They're my kind of like old school go-to. And of course, this is pretentious, but Honoré de Balzac. Because Balzac's whole thing was the human comedy, right? It was about all these, the grand tapestry of humanity and the way that we all interconnect. And yeah, so Balzac as well. So yeah, some old school and some new school. I hope you enjoyed that. And I am honoured that this is the first podcast to interview Musa about one of his many, many books he's got out this year. Um, so firstly, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Okwonga, O-K-W-O-N-G-A. And recent articles of his are at the Financial Times, Byline Times, Guardian and many, many other publications. The book that we talked about um, most is called One of Them and it will be out on the 15th of April. But you can pre-order it now from all the good, bad and morally vague bookshops too. And Musa's other books this year are called In the End, It Was About Love, which, uh, as he mentioned, is a follow-on from his piece in The Good Immigrant, and that is out now and available from Rough Trade Books. And then there's also Striking Out, which he co-wrote with footballer Ian Wright, and is a children's book inspired by Ian's life. Uh, which brings uh, me to, if any of you are football fans, uh, Musa also hosts the very popular Stadio podcast, which you can get wherever uh, you do your podding. Um, it does very, very well indeed, uh, so I'm sure you can find it quite easily. Uh, all links to all those things will be in the podcast blurb and on the website too. Right, uh, who else shall I speak to for this show? What burning issue do I need to discuss that I haven't so far? And if it's really burning, shouldn't you hear a doctor and probably, as I said earlier, apply some cream? Uh, let me know and send all your suggestions for guests or indeed uh, creams to at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could place your suggestion in an inadequately packed free school meal and everyone would see it as it's posted around Twitter as an example of sheer heartlessness and there'd be a confusion by non-parents as to what froobs are and why they sound like something contagious. And ultimately everyone would hate you and by even considering your suggestion I'd be shut down and Acast would give my pod space to charity which would be terrible as they end up earning as little from it as I do. So as always it's probably just best to email isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for popping your lug holes into these frustrated brain screams. And should you have enjoyed any of that what you heard, why not suggest it to someone you know to give it a listen? Or maybe just suggest it to someone you don't know by shouting it out the window at passers-by. Or maybe answer one of those spam calls about a car crash you didn't have and tell them that it's not good for their mental health to be working for a company that thrives on scamming the vulnerable. And why not instead walk out, call their boss a disgraced Derek and pop this podcast on their headphones as they stroll out of the office flipping the bird and having a total disregard for the fact that they're now jobless and poor because of some idiot comedian. You can, of course, uh, also give the show a lovely five-star review on one of the many podcast apps that exist, though Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Castbox and Acast are bestest for that. And if you can afford to, please fling a penny or five at the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro site, join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro team, or via the Acast support button on the app. 
Or just give a few quid to that person that just lost their job at the call centre because you chatted shit. They'll need it now, and frankly, you should apologise. Big cheers and that to Acast for hosting the show, my brother the last sceptic for all the beats, Cat Day for the linear line of notes, and Katie Coxall for the art party. This will be back next week when it turns out that every part of the vaccine injection is counted as a vaccine and hundreds of patients complain after turning up in a mass jab centre only to have small syringe plungers thrown at them as Nadim Zawahi shouts each successful number like the count from Sesame Street. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Statue Cops. Have you got a statue? Are you worried some bang mobs who find things that don't move really creepy want to pull it down? Are you scared that if someone pulls down that ancient war criminal posing on a horse that looks sad that all your local birds will shit on your car instead? Are you worried about people deleting history even though the internet exists? Well, call us Statue Cops and we'll stand near your statue and send you updates every five minutes to let you know, don't worry, the statue's still there. Should anyone suspicious come near the statue, we will say no! Stop it! Until they do. Won't anyone think of the statues? Yeah, us, Statue Cops! Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.